The foulest stench is in the air, the funk of 40,000 years, and grisly ghouls from every tomb are closing in to seal your doom. And though you fight to stay alive, your body starts to shiver, for no mere mortal can resist the evil of the thriller. I'm not even going to try to imitate Vincent Price's thrilling, chilling rap at the end of Michael Jackson's iconic song. But just as Michael's team gave Vincent a role to play in his work, we're going to give Michael a role to play in our work this week. Because along with my pal guest star and longtime fool Robert Brokamp, we are going to tell some scary stories, focusing on people who didn't do their wills. On this week's podcast, seven of them, in fact. One of them is a chapter featuring Michael Jackson. Robert is here to scare you and me. This scary time of year scare you into making sure you get that family will done. Maybe it's yours you need to do, or maybe it's your parents, because scary things can and will do happen when you don't tie a bow around your financial life. The evil of the thriller. Indeed, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. You know, it was a mailbag item earlier this year. Fergus Cullen, longtime fool and friend of mine. Fergus, you wrote in a heartbreaking story on our mailbag about a young man. I think he was in high school And his father had tragically died in recent weeks. And instead of being able fully to process and to mourn for his father, which I hope he did, he also had to take over all of the estate management decisions because his father, who was an entrepreneur, I believe, had his own business. His father didn't have a will. And so this young man grew up awfully quickly. He had to. It's not an easy thing for any of us at any stage of our lives, but especially think of that young person. And I remember having Robert Brokamp join me on Rule Breaker Investing that week to speak to the mailbag item. And then afterwards, Bro dropped me a note and he said, you know, I've got some scary stories about people who didn't do their will. And I thought, park it, hold off, wait for October, come back on this podcast and let's talk about, let's share those stories. And that's exactly what we're doing this week. Now, some of these stories are about really well-known people, and some are about people that you haven't heard of before, but all of them touch us personally. You might find yourself spoken to or touched, for better or for worse, at one or another point during this week's podcast, and I want you to know we're all human. We're all doing the best we can, and I bet a lot of us have a story, a tip, perspective, maybe advice which is most welcomed this scary month of October because next week's show is the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. And I'm quite sure a number of you have additional, again, wisdom, advice, stories, or perspective that you'll find spoken to or will arise from this week's podcast. And I think it'd be great to speak to that somewhat in next week's show. So the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag is next week. RBI at fool.com, of course, our email address. Drop us a note. You can also follow us on Twitter at RBI Podcast. Now, if you haven't already, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter. I already mentioned at RBI Podcast. I'm at David G. Fool on Twitter. My guest star this week is at Robert Brokamp. That's with a K, Brokamp on Twitter. Finally, we hope you'll give us a review. Throw me some stars. Let us know how we're doing I read every comment. Robert Brokamp, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to see you on this scary week. Thank you for having me back, David. Uh, I am very happy to be here, even though the topic we're going to discuss is not necessarily a happy topic. It is not. And yet, I think that October, it's safe space for us to tell horrific and scary things, stories. I totally agree. And you have brought them. You've brought seven stories. And a few of these I know, but many I don't. So I'm kind of like the rest of our listeners pulling up to what normally would be a warm and hospitable campfire. But this time, it's kind of terrifying. It's, it's glowing more than, than burning. It's, it's a little spooky here. And we're about to talk. I want to define one of our terms right up front because this is not a word I walk around using all the time. 
Uh, of course, those in the trade, and Robert, you would be one of them, uh, might use the word decedent on a semi-regular basis. But for the most, most of the rest of us, especially some of our English is not your first language listeners, decedent, very simply, this one's from dictionary.com, a person who has died. Yes, very simple. I and mean, you know, we're going to be talking about estate planning, which is very legalistic. And decedent is essentially a very legalistic term for someone who died. Before we get deeper into death, Robert, a topic that keeps recurring on the, this podcast this year, um, let me just ask you have, have you done your own will? I have. And I will say that when I was younger, I just did a regular old online will, which is probably fine if you are not married, don't have kids, your finances are not complicated. More recently, I have done a full-fledged estate plan with a qualified attorney, which is what I think most people really should do. And that includes a will, includes a trust, it includes um, healthcare directives, it includes instructions on what my wife and I want to happen in case we're being kept alive by artificial machines or anything like that. And it also includes a whole list of where to find anything anyone would need to find if we pass away. So where are our life insurance policies? Where are our bank accounts? Where do we have all that stuff? And mm. I've named one sister as an executor and another sister as the backup executor. And they know exactly where to find this stuff if something happens to me and my wife. That is great. And um, I have also done my will. I don't think either of us is bragging about that, but I, I do feel as if, Robert, we should be exemplars somewhat. I mean, if we're going to talk the talk here, we we should be walking the walk, especially you, by the way. So I'm glad you've done this work. <laughs> I also, with my wife, have used an attorney. We're hoping not to be decedent for some time, and yet one never knows. And that's, well, that's kind of an underlying story that underlies each of the seven scary stories we're going to share this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Well, I say without further ado, let's get started, bro. Uh, you've named each one of these. Can't be names, appropriately enough. And I'm going to ask my talented producer, Rick, to play a scary intro sound to get us in the mood here for chapter one, The Ghost of Paisley Park. Well, the decedent in this case, as you might guess, is Prince Rogers Nelson, of course, better known by his first name, Prince, who died in 2016 from a fentanyl overdose. And yes, Prince was his first name. He got it from his father, who was a, a jazz musician mm. and had a stage name of Prince Rogers. And he decided to pass along to his son when Prince was born in 1958. Now, Prince is gone, not forgotten. Paisley Park, that 65,000 square foot complex that served as uh, Prince's home office studio. You can go visit it as a museum. And if you visited on the five-year anniversary of his death, you could have viewed a small model of Paisley Park that serves as the urn for Prince's ashes. So what was the mistake that Prince made? Well, he didn't do any estate planning whatsoever. Mm. No will, no trusts, no notes scrawled out in purple ink. He wasn't married, didn't have any living children. Um, so his one full sibling and five half siblings filed claims to the estate. But hundreds of others came out of the war work claiming that they're also princes have siblings or wives or business partners or even children, including a, a guy who was an inmate in a Colorado uh, jail who said his mom had a one night stand with Prince in 1976. Oh, my gosh. Eventually, a DNA test uh, proved that he wasn't Prince's son. So, so let me ask you about this. But first of all, do we know the size of the estate today? Yes. And we this was just determined two months ago. So again, oh he my died gosh. in in 2016, it was finally valued at $156 million. Now, do you think uh, that he had any idea himself the size of what he of his fortune at the, at the time? Well, so here's the difficult thing, right? This is why it took so long because not only does did he have property, real estate, stocks, bonds, and stuff like that, but he had his music catalog, including some songs that had not been yet released. Ah. So it took a long time to value those, but even to access them, because to actually access some of these masters, the bank that was eventually declared to be the administrator had to drill into his vault because he was the only person with the combination, which gets back to how you need to leave important information to the people who will be your executor or administrator, because otherwise they won't be able to access some of this stuff. Well, for each of these seven stories, Robert, you and I talked about this ahead of time. We, I think you'll be leading off with The Decedent, a very well-known one in this case, as you already have. Section two, I think you just spoke to that, is The Mistake. And 
clearly this was complex in the first place. I mean, when you're an artist and you have the capability of creating value, i.e. an unreleased song, no one really knows how to value that. So how could you even know fully what you have? But clearly it wasn't Prince's job, I don't think, to value his own estate. It was his job to think about it and to think about what he wanted to do with it. Well, his untimely death obviously made for a very difficult time for his family, all of his fans, etc. But here we are, six years later, picking up the pieces a little bit, if we're his estate team. For each of these, Robert, you've said you're going to bring a lesson. And I, I love that. Thank you. So for each of our seven scary stories, there's the lesson, perhaps more than one for some of these. But what is the lesson of the ghost of Paisley Park? Well, it's really the most fundamental lesson, which is you've got to do some kind of estate planning. And it's really quite shocking how many people die without doing anything. And we're talking about people like Abraham Lincoln, Jimi Hendrix, Martin Luther King, Sonny Bono, Picasso, Buddy Holly, just to name a few. All these people died without doing anything, even a basic will. Without a will, a trust, and all these other documents, the courts decide who gets what. Mm. which could take a long time, cost a lot of money. Um, it took more than a year after Prince's death for a court to name his six siblings. As I just mentioned, um, it was just this year that the, the estate was finally valued. Six of the, the six siblings that were named as the heirs, two of them have died since Prince died. So they weren't oh even gosh. able really to sort of benefit from the estate. So, and, and in the case of Prince's music, he had very definite ideas about what he wanted to do with his music. You know, he did not put his music on Spotify, for example. but once, once he passed away, his estate was able to put that on there. Did he want that to happen? Does he want his music on Spotify? doesn't matter because he didn't put down his wishes in mm. writing, which he should have done before he passed away. I mean, he was only 57. That was very young. And I think that's one of the mistakes everyone makes is they think, well, I've got plenty of time, but you just don't know how much time you have. I was going to say, I, I think that that would have to be the number one factor. I mean, we're not saying that people who've not filled out their will, who should have, don't love those who come after them as much as those who do. Maybe in some cases they do, but that's not what we're saying. I think what we're saying is it's not even that they didn't think they'd ever die. It's just they didn't think it would happen when it did. Yes, they did absolutely. it. They weren't prepared. And so fundamentally, I love that you let off with the ghost of Paisley Park, lesson number one. I don't know if there's a progression in the lessons, Robert. You can tell us. We'll find out. Is, is there more complexity? Are we going a certain direction? But this is a great one to start with because it's just about doing the work, putting in the work. Yes, and, and I think as we go through, we'll get into sort of more deeper details about what makes for a solid estate plan. By the way, for those who have a simple financial life, they may not have a lot to give right now or a lot of people to work with. What's the URL or site or link that you would recommend? If I just want to do something quick and dirty because I'm a responsible 28-year-old hearing this right now, I feel like I should do that. Does The Motley Fool have a given partner? Do you have a specific recommendation? Is it wills.com? I went through an attorney, so I don't know, but there are a lot of us who are good at rolling up our sleeves and doing stuff ourselves among our Fool membership. So, where should I report for duty at the age of 28 if I just want to do it well and fast? My favorite website for anything about legal matters is nolo.com. And nolo.com is a good resource for getting some of these legal documents done on your own. Um, many employers offer some sort of legal aid or an employee assistance program. And part ah. of that can be a free will or access to will creating software. So that's a good start. But in the end, most people should get qualified legal advice from an attorney who's experienced in estate planning. Many attorneys will say, yes, I'm an attorney. I can write a will. But you really want someone who has experience working with someone in your situation around your wealth level. Maybe you own businesses, so you want to work with attorneys experience with businesses, yeah. real estate, things like that. The more you have, the more it matters. And typically, the older we get, the more we have. So choose your own adventure, dear listener. Let's move on to scary story number two. Robert, you've entitled this one, A Tale of Tractor Terror. So the decedent in this case was named Cecil George Harris. So he was a farmer in Saskatchewan. He rode out into his fields one day, 1948. At one point, he climbed down from his tractor to do some maintenance. Unfortunately, he accidentally knocked the tractor into gear and got pinned underneath. Um, he was found hours later. He was still Ugh. alive, but unfortunately, he died the next day at the hospital. 
That is scary, and that is our decedent. That is our decedent. So what was the mistake he made? But he actually rectified it at the last minute. He didn't have a will, or so people thought. So after Cecil's death, neighbors noticed that there were some words scrawled into the bumper of his tractor. And they read, quote, in case I die in this mess, I leave all to the wife, signed Cecil George Harris. What? And the the court actually accepted it as a valid will. However, because wills have to be filed with the court, the fender had to be removed and kept in the courthouse. And in 1996, it was donated to the University of Saskatchewan College of Law for public display, where it's still there. That is an awesome story. Oh my gosh, what a, what a, what a hero. Yes, and I, actually I looked this up. Uh, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's not the uh, shortest will ever. The shortest will ever um, was written by a fellow in Germany. It's two Czech words, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce them, but it means um, leave to the wife, leave all to the wife. And he wrote it on the wall next to his bed as he realized he was about to pass away. Oh, wow. All right. Well, a lot of us can maybe guess at a lesson or two, but Robert, what lesson do you see most clearly in the story of Cecil George Harris? Well, so obviously his quick thinking spared his family some difficulties uh, that came from dying without a will at all. Because again, if you don't have the will, the state decides what happens to everything you own. Um, But obviously we shouldn't rely on that, right? We can't rely on being able to know the end is near. So you got to get the will. But as I've pointed out, it should include other things. Um, and I think one of the things people have trouble making decisions about, for example, and I don't know if it was in the case of Cecil's situation, but you need to think about what's going to happen to your kids and the assets they're going to inherit. So part of a, a good estate plan is naming guardians for your kids and then who will manage their money until they become adults when they can manage the money on their own. So it is much more complex than just a will. Mm. All right. Well, it is the baseball time of year. I do want to say before we proceed to story number three, which looks to me like it has a baseball title, I really regret that the Los Angeles Dodgers got knocked out of the postseason by the San Diego Padres just a few days ago. You know, the Dodgers were by far the best team in the major leagues this year. Their run differentials were awesome. No matter who is still playing at the end of October, No matter who is the champion, I will still feel that the Dodgers were the best team in Major League Baseball this year. And I think it's particularly sad when that small sample size of postseason games, and this happens across all sports, you only get to play a few in the playoffs, tiny compared to the body of work that the Dodgers had all season long, and yet the Dodgers have to watch along with the rest of us who gets to win in October. Okay, enough baseball asides. Chapter three is entitled The Headless Slugger. Yes, in this case, the decedent is Hall of Fame baseball player Ted Williams, who died in 2002 at the age of 83. Now, he had, he had a will which stipulated that he wanted to be cremated and his ashes scattered off the coast of Florida. But that ended up not being the final word on what would happen to his earthly remains. Mm. And here's, here's the mistake. So Williams had three kids from two marriages. After his death, the two younger kids produced a stained napkin, allegedly signed by the two kids and Williams, with a note indicating they all agreed to be, quote, put in biostasis after we die. In other words, cryogenically frozen. Now, the older daughter disputed the note and tried to fight it in courts, but William's signature on the napkin was authenticated to be genuine, and eventually the older daughter just ran out of money and she couldn't contest it. So, William's body was packed into ice and sent to a cryogenics company in Florida. Amazing. His head was separated from his body, and the two parts are now stored in metal tanks. And then two years later, Williams was joined by his son, who died of leukemia. Wow, you know, there was a wonderful short story written by John Updike, about Ted Williams's final at bat. I think it was called Hub Fans Bid Kid Adieu. Pretty sure, spoiler alert, pretty sure he hits a home run in his final appearance at Fenway Park to end his career. And he wasn't Prince. He he was he was responsible. He had a will and yet still 
appropriately enough, you've entitled this the headless slugger, and I think we can all appreciate why. Uh, I'm not really sure what you're going to do with the lesson here. What is the lesson, bro? Well, so the lesson is, um, it's quite possible that Williams genuinely wished to have his remains stored at 320 degrees below zero in perpetuity. Um, but there are questions about the legitimacy of the cryogenics note, right? So one theory is, is that it started out just as an autograph, and then the two kids wrote the rest of the note around it, right? Because he signed the napkin as Ted, as he did for all his autographs, but not as Theodore, which is how he usually signed his legal documents. But regardless, right, if he wanted to make a more official change to his will, he should have done it with the help of a lawyer, either by redoing it completely or adding a legally binding amendment known as a codicil. It would have saved his kids uh, a lot of money and a lot of grief. Mm. You know, I'm thinking back to a few years ago on this podcast, we had Amy Castoro joining. She is the author of a book. Well, the first edition was called Preparing Heirs. She is a professional in this space. And one of the lessons we all learned from Amy is, as much as possible, talk some of this stuff out with your kids. Don't surprise everybody. That's always the Hollywood scene, right? We're going to go into the den because Gramps has died, and we're going to have the dramatic reading of the will, and everyone's going to be shocked because something surprising is going to happen. And I mean, that's that's Hollywood, right? It's pretty much the opposite of how it probably should be in real life. So I think I also hear the lesson here, bro. Maybe, you know, maybe Ted has has a talk with all of the kids or there's more awareness shared down well in advance of we're going to go with deceding. Well in advance of deceding, probably not an accurate verb. Um, have those conversations with the people who will be affected. And if possible, make them included in some of the solutions. Maybe you have a good idea about where you want to put the money, but maybe once you talk about it with your adult kids, they say, yeah, dad or mom, but but what about this? Because that would really energize us. Uh, and so I think the more it's a whole family decision with better communication, Amy Castoro reminded us, I think the better the outcome. So I hear that one in the headless slugger as well. Robert, are you a, a baseball fan? <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm not much of a baseball we fan. We really have never. I mean, all. you've worked. we've worked together for more than 20 years of the fool. I don't think we've ever really talked baseball. I apologize for that distracting aside <laughs> about the Los Angeles Dodgers. You and perhaps many of my listeners probably didn't really care. Let's go on to story number four. I feel as if I could almost guess what Rick might do with the sound effects for chapter four, The Alien Who Loved Me. this case we're talking about robin williams who you know first attained worldwide fame as the goofball mork from the planet orc he died in 2014 while living with his third wife susan schneider williams so he actually had a pretty solid estate plan that left most of his wealth to his three kids from previous marriages but his plan also stipulated that his wife would be able to live in their home that they shared and receive money to pay for its maintenance once she passes away it'll then go to his three kids so that's a pretty common arrangement the mistake was that Williams' estate plan wasn't sufficiently specific about what would happen to everything in the home, which was a cause of contention between the wife and the children. So they reportedly mm. fought over all kinds of items, including furniture, artwork, even clothing, such as uh, Williams' slippers and reportedly even his underwear. And the dispute essentially centered on one question. What counts as Robin Williams' memorabilia that should go to the kids, such as his morgue suspenders? And uh, <laughs> what are sentimental items that his wife could keep? So what happened more than a year after William's death, his wife and the kids settled the dispute. Uh, the terms are confidential, but in a statement, lawyers for Susan Williams said that Mrs. Williams will be able to keep the few emotional items he requested, such as their wedding gifts, selected clothing, a watch he, that Robin Williams wore, um, and that the Williams children will receive the vast majority of the items they demanded, such as more than 50 bikes. I don't know why he needed 50 bikes. Over 85 watches, and also apparently Robin Williams um, had extensive collections of things like comic books and army men. Well, he was a cool guy, Nanu, Nanu. I, I assume you, you're a Robin Williams fan. Who's, who's not a Robin Williams fan? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you're somebody that well-known and that famous, I can understand there's got to be a lot more complexity for someone like Robin Williams than for you for me. And I won't put it past our listeners. We have some amazing and fascinating listeners, but I think most of us 
have a much simpler life and a simpler plan. Very few things most of us have might be considered or not memorabilia. How do you even categorize something like that? I, I guess I guess the lawyers know. Yes, and I mean, it really did come down to questions about what that word meant, that actual word. Does memorabilia yeah. just relate to anything that was related to his entertainment career, or do sentimental things like pictures count as memorabilia? So that's really what the fight was about. You know, the Latin for the word memorabilia is straight up things to be remembered. I mean, you don't even have to skate very far away from the ice of the etymology of the word to kind of, but then again, it's kind of ambiguous. Objects that are connected to or remind us of past events, I guess, are things to be remembered. There is a lot of complexity. Sometimes common words end up being legalized and sometimes have specialized meanings. What's the lesson? So the lesson here is that when people think of estate planning, they often think like, okay, who's going to inherit my house? Who's going to inherit my car? Who's going to inherit my IRA? But really some of the biggest fights come down to inheriting stuff that may not have a lot of financial value, but have a lot of sentimental value. Heirlooms, collections, stuff that used to belong to grandma or grandpa, uh, the Christmas tree. So the thing to do here is, and it's related to what you said previously, is if you can, have a discussion with your kids or other heirs beforehand. What do you want to receive? What of my stuff has a lot of sentimental value to you? And be as specific as possible in your estate plan of who's going to inherit what and a system by which all that stuff will be distributed. Because if the kids can't agree, what often happens is then it has to be sold and then the money is distributed. And so what used to be maybe a family heirloom that could have stayed in the family gets forced to be sold and now nobody gets it. And it's really an important point. And yeah, things like IRAs, these are very numerical. They have account numbers. These are things that are fairly easy to line up. But wow, that conversation about mementos and memorabilia and what do we value, that does seem like such a, that, that almost feels to me like a good inroad if you have an older parent and this is a touchy subject, you could almost start rather than say, hey, mom or dad, do you have a will? Maybe you could start with, hey, mom or dad, I was thinking about, you know, what are the five things that mean the most to you on this world? And I'm thinking not of your IRA, but of your, I don't know, your favorite old pair of shoes. You never really know what mom or dad or gramps is going to be valuing, but that's not a bad way to start the conversation. You know, Robert, I was reading back through Marie Kondo's book recently, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Did you ever read the Marie Method book? Of course, of course. I think Excellent. we even I think we even did a podcast on how to Marie Kondo your money. But yes, <laughs> I love that you did that on Motley Fool Answers. I, 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 I maybe I heard that. Uh, I did go back and read read the book recently, and she actually talks about when cleaning things out. The very last thing she wants you to have to think about emptying your closet of are those mementos and your memorabilia. She's like, start with clothing. Start with stuff that's easy to toss. I mean, not memorabilia clothing, of course, but you know, things, books. Um, again, we love our clothes. We love our books. But the things that we have a particular affection for because they mark a time in our lives or they were the last thing we have from mom or whatever, those things, she says, Make the decisions last because you will have strengthened your mind and your resolve around getting rid of clothing or books. But that mementos and memorabilia piece, along with Robin Williams, who, I mean, you could almost argue anything that he touched in his last year becomes memorabilia. Uh, it's, it's much, much more complex for him. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm glad that we had this brief meditation on the power of things because I think a lot of us recognize that we don't want to be too materialistic and often... I've heard people say, you know, a better idea for gift giving is give experiences. That's almost a cliche these days. Don't give stuff. But let's go back on the side of stuff briefly and say stuff does matter. And that's a key lesson here in The Alien Who Loved Me. So thank you for chapter four, Robert. You know, before we move on to chapter five, it, how can I not bring this up? You are a champion Halloween costume <laughs> genius. I'm not going to brag too much in your behalf, Robert, but you have been featured uh, for one of the outfits you had at the Motley Fool headquarters some years ago in the Washington Post in their story the day after Halloween. This is 
legend, the stuff of bro around Full HQ. Now, I know not as many of us are going to offices these days. Are you still dressing up this year? Uh, that's a good question. <clears throat> it really depends on what the fool does. I mean, as you know, we don't have to go into the office anymore, but some of us still do. Uh, and if there is a costume gathering on Halloween on a Monday this year, then I'll probably come up with something. Well, that would be awesome. I will say this. I heard about a taco party at Fool HQ today, and people were popping. Yes. So um, maybe that's not just true of Fool HQ, but some other offices these days. I am a fan, as admittedly, as little as I've been to our office in recent months, I am a huge fan of congregating. And food often brings us together. And some of my favorite food is candy that's given out at Halloween. Anyway, maybe see you on that Monday, bro. Let's move on to chapter number five. You've entitled this Night of the Living Document. So in this case, the decedent was a fellow by the name of William Kennedy. So he worked for DuPont and participated in the company's retirement plan. Um, he was married to a woman named Liv, uh, but they got divorced in 1994. And in the divorce agreement, Liv waived her rights to his retirement plan. Uh, several years later, William Kennedy died and his daughter expects to inherit the retirement plan. Unfortunately, while they were married, William had designated Liv as the beneficiary of his retirement plan. Totally makes sense, right? Yeah. After the divorce, he didn't fill out the form to change that beneficiary designation. So the administrator of the plan sent the ex-wife the check. His daughter challenged it all the way to the highest court in land, but to no avail. In 2009, the Supreme Court decided in Liv's favor, and she got to keep the $400,000. Why is that story scary? Well, so this is something that almost all of us have done, filled out some sort of beneficiary designation. It could be our retirement account. It could be a life insurance policy. We may have designated some other investment or bank account as transfer in death and payable on death. And we may name our spouse. We may name uh, you know, our, our kids as backup. But then things change. Right, you no longer are married, or maybe someone has passed away. Maybe you have a kid that you're going to leave an account to, but they're a spendthrift, and and you find out later that you know maybe you shouldn't leave money to that kid, mm. but you have to update it because the law is very fuzzy on this, and that you could even say in your will, "I want all my money to go to this person," but then the beneficiary designated designation had not been updated, so someone else is going to get that money. Mm. You know, I'm thinking a little bit about memory here at this point. I mean, you could argue that William Kennedy, it was a failure of his memory. Some of us are simply absent-minded throughout our lives. Some of us, I'm going to include myself here, feel like our memory isn't as good as it was 10 years ago or 30 years ago. And I'm worried my memory might not be too great in another 20 or 30 years. Are there some compensatory things that either the law forgives or more importantly, are there some processes that we might want to put into place so that whether we're talking about ourselves or an older parent we're taking care of, their failing memory doesn't cause them not to sign all the forms that need to be signed? I think you just have to build in the habit of, of annually reviewing your estate plan. Really? Annually? annually? I have to review my... We have to review our estate plans... That's scary. Annually? Well, because I think you have to build in the habit. Uh, because if you don't, you just don't think to do it. Um, Are you saying you ABD always be deceiving? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I would say uh, always, always, uh, what is the, 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 the Latin phrase from the Stoics? Momento, momento mori? Yes, um, memento mori. Yes, which is basically means, you know, at some point you're going to die and <laughs> you have to be planning on that. Um, so, I mean, so what an estate planning attorney would say, you may not have to review it every year. You have to review it every few years or any significant life change. You know, someone moves in or out of your life. You move to a different state because estate planning laws mm. are dictated by the state. But I think you got to get into the habit of it. And I will add to this and, and we'll make this the lesson too, because we've talked about the lesson and that you have to update beneficiary forms. It's also a good idea to print them out and to include them with all your other documents because there have been... Um, actual stories, real life stories of a big name financial services firm losing beneficiary designations. So you cannot rely on Schwab, Vanguard, Fidelity, or whomever to have it on file. You should print it out and include it with all your documents. Wow. 
So for some of us, self-included, who felt going into this episode, well, these won't be so scary, these stories, because, I mean, I've done this. A little bit of a pat on the back. We should be wiping those smug smirks off our face if we haven't put into place a process every couple of years where we are taking a look back at this stuff and making sure uh, the game hasn't changed without our being aware of that. Yep, absolutely. I almost feel like I'm having too much fun this week. You're making it fun for us, but it's not a fun topic, so I feel slightly guilty that it's this fun. Let's keep it fun and scary as we move on to chapter number six, story number six. Ro, you've entitled this one, No Mere Mortal Can Resist mm -hmm. the Estate of the Thriller. Are you all right? Get away! And yes, we're talking here about the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. Um, but he was also a single parent who had sole custody of his three minor children when he died in 2009. Fortunately, he did leave behind a will, which named his mother as the guardian of his children. With, okay. uh, by the way, singer Diana Ross was the backup. It also stated that his estate should be transferred to the Michael Jackson Family Trust after his death. Here was the mistake. So having a trust actually makes a lot of sense, especially for a wealthy, famous person like Michael Jackson. So... The problem was um, it was set up in a way that it, the trust would not be funded until after he died. And in that case, it doesn't really make sense because it, it negates a few of the key benefits of a trust. So here are the benefits of a trust. First of all, trust is, is not a public document, unlike a will. If you put something in your will, it's going to be filed with the county or the city and everyone will be able to see it. A trust is not public. So the extra privacy afforded by a trust can reduce the chances there'll be a fight over who gets what. Also, Property held in a trust bypasses probate, which is that this potentially long and costly process of settling an estate. Uh, it can take up for anywhere from six months to several years for probate. In Marilyn Monroe's estate, it took 39 years to get out of probate. Um, but by having it in trust, it bypasses probate so the beneficiaries can get access to the money quicker. And when done properly, the right type of trust can reduce exposure to estate taxes. Now, most people don't have to worry about that. In the, tip, the typical individual nowadays can leave up to $12 million, twice that as a married couple, without worrying about estate taxes. But when you're Michael Jackson and you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, um, he could have saved him an awful lot of estate taxes if he had funded the, um, the trust before he passed away. But because it had to go through probate, it locked everything up. In fact, even now, even though he died in 2009, his estate is not officially closed. Robert, I almost feel like you left storytelling there to give us some important facts. But I feel like I want to get back to the story here. Do you remember where you were when Michael Jackson died? I see the date now, June 25th, 2009. Was that one such moment for you where you remember where you were when that thing happened? I was I was working at the Motley Fool, and uh, I was in the office, and I was you know refreshing my my computer every whatever half hour to an hour to get the most uh, the most recent information on it. And yeah, yeah, I mean, especially for people of our age, David. I mean, we you and I are about the same age, and we grew up in in the time of of you know when we were young, it was the Jackson Five, and then when we were in high school, it was Michael Jackson and Thriller. So yeah, definitely a big part of of us 80s kids. Absolutely. Now, my memory is a little bit more blurry, but the record will show it was a Thursday, so it was indeed a day at the office. I do keep every day on my calendar so I can literally go back and see. I see. I was actually driving over to the post office for passports. I don't even remember where we were headed. I went to a Washington Nationals game that night. But yeah, I think Michael Jackson's death for a lot of people who are 50-something I remember the TV show, the TV show, the Jackson, and a huge part of pop culture really throughout our childhood and adult lives included Michael Jackson. Robert, what's the, what's the lesson that you see in this one? So I would say, first of all, most people should consider trust. Um, and many attorneys strongly argue that it's better to transfer assets via trust as opposed to a will for all the benefits I talked about. Um, that said, they are more complicated um, and they're definitely more expensive. So I sometimes see situations where trusts are recommended where they're probably not necessary. Okay. Um, but that said, they should be considered probably by the vast majority of people listening to this podcast, but you got to make sure you get the right kind and you actually have to transfer property to it. 
Otherwise, it's not going to provide the benefits that you want. And it, and it really gets to a larger point. And that is once you've worked with an estate plan attorney, when you leave that office, you're going to leave with some sort of to-do list and probably with a good 10 to 15 items. And you got to make sure you get those done if you want your estate plan to work as intended. You know, so much of this comes down to uh, the legal advice. Um, neither Robert Brokamp nor David Gardner is a lawyer or wills and estates professional. We don't even try to play one on TV, let alone this podcast. But it does strike me that for a lot of us, a question we might have, Robert, is how do I find somebody I can trust? Or like, who's the good lawyer that really knows wills and estates or how to set up a trust versus somebody, and if I'm not a legal professional, maybe I can't discern as well the good ones from the bad ones. Do you have any process or tip for me on my search to find the good ones? It's a tough one. And you have to start with um, the, the tried and true getting referrals and ideally from professionals you trust. So if you have an accountant that you work with and a financial advisor that, that you work with, they ideally will have some people uh, they can recommend. And then a final resource is the website of the American College of Trust and Estate Council. So Aha. Um, this is a collection of lawyers who are experienced in estate planning, but I like the website too, because it has lots of good educational material. So if you want to learn anything about estate planning, go to the website, but then they have a part of the website that's basically find an estate planning attorney in your area. You enter your zip code and you see who's in your town or city. All right. And I know you're going to give us a simple URL because you just said something like the American College <laughs> and I don't want to type that into my browser bar. So what's the quick, easy URL? Ready? It's A-C-T-E-C dot org. Oh, like Aztec, but Actech. Org. That's it. You should also you could could also ask people that you know who are in your same situation. Someone who is, let's say, you own a business. You've talked to other business owners because that does require a certain amount of specialization to do the estate planning for business owners. And indeed, I basically use that same process myself. I do have a trust, and I do feel good about it. And it was well done by people that I respect and know. And yes, referrals often do come through professionals. And the obvious type of professional to get a referral from would be a financial professional, as you mentioned, perhaps an accountant that you like and respect, maybe a maybe a university friend or something back in the day. They can point you in the direction of somebody who's good at wills and estates. But failing that, I would even say if next time you go to the doctor, probably doctors or people who earn more than the average American or more than the average earthling, these might not be your first resort, but if you have no other resort, that's not a bad way to go either. People that are higher net worth that you know that probably have had this work done and probably sought out somebody who was good at doing it, those are good questions you can ask as well. Before we go to our final story this week, a quick reminder, next week is our mailbag, rbi at fool.com is our email address. Would love to hear stories and perspectives, of course, about any of the podcasts we did this month. But in particular, I can imagine this one might, well, scare up a good story or two. Well, it's been a pretty scary week, and I don't know if you've saved the scariest for last. Have you? No, I think this one is a little a little less scary. Um... Good. So, so we're past the jump scares in this week's podcast. There are no jump scares in this story. <laughs> no, but I should say, I mean, if you are the family involved in this story, it was plenty scary enough. All right. Well, you've entitled Chapter 7, A Nightmare on Wall Street. You know, I think Rick could probably go with A Nightmare on Elm Street, or he could go with music from the movie Wall Street. I think either of those are directions. Let's hear which way he wants to go. is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. All right, a nightmare on Wall Street. Robert, what do you have for the final story this week? So this is the story of a fellow named Max Hopper, who is a pioneer of reservation systems uh, for American Airlines. The, the technology eventually became part of the Sabre Group, which some of us are familiar with. Oh, he pioneered the reservation system. Yeah. Saber. Yeah. I mean, that, that was pretty big back in the day. Yes. So he was pre internet. Yes. Although eventually jumped to the internet. Definitely. Yeah. But this man knew logistics and technology. Yes. 
and so he sadly passed away in 2010 with assets more than $19 million, but he didn't have a will. So part of the will is you name who's going to be the administrator or executor of your estate. Yep. Didn't have that. So uh, J.P. Morgan was hired to be the administrator of the estate. And, you know, it's a big, reputable Wall Street firm, right? What could go wrong? Well, according to a lawsuit filed by Hopper's widow and stepchildren, J.P. Morgan didn't do such a good job. According to a statement from the family's lawyer, the bank took years to release basic interest in art, furnishings, jewelry, and notably, Mr. Hopper's collection of 6,700 golf putters and 900 <laughs> bottles of wine. So yeah, that's a lot of golf putters. I don't even know where you store Why? all those. Why? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, in 2017, so this is seven years after uh, Mr. Hopper passed away, the jury sided with the family and ordered J.P. Morgan to pay them more than $4 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B. Wine amount that was so much larger than Hopper's $19 million estate, while jurors were instructed to consider J.P. Morgan's net worth, which at the time was over $300 billion. It was the largest judgment awarded in all of America in 2017. However, a later court <laughs> knocked that down to a measly $7 million. Wow. What a story. You know, a lot of us do trust the big financial brands and JP Morgan, I mean, has earned more trust than not over the years. But it is a reminder that the choices that we make, especially for those executors in our lives as we decede, matter. Robert, would you like to, does, does, do you have an executor? How could you not if you have a will? Does that person know that they are the executor? Yes, it's my sister-in-law who is extremely detail-oriented, which gets nice. to part of the lesson of this. Uh, but also she lives in this state. And it is much easier to be the executor of someone's estate if you live in that state. It's not impossible if you live out of state, but it's much easier. You often have to go to the courthouse um, and just do a, basically a lot of nitty-gritty details that are not much fun. By the way, if you are named executor, that doesn't mean you have to do all the work. You can actually hire some people to do it, and it's paid from the estate. And actually, you can pay yourself. And, and that varies from each county and state how much is reasonable compensation. Yeah. Um, but the thing, you know, part of it too here is you want someone who cares about you and your stuff to make sure that your state is, set, is settled. You can hire a big bank to be your administrator, but are they going to care as much about you and your legacy as someone who loves you? Probably not. And is that is that the lesson? That is the lesson. I mean, you really have to choose wisely when it comes to who you appoint as your executor. It can be very time-consuming, very detail-oriented. I'm the executor of my father-in-law's estate. It's been open now for over two years because, unfortunately, he didn't pay his taxes. And we can't settle the estate until we pay the taxes. But to pay the taxes, we got to get his tax transcripts and there's not enough people working at the IRS to get us the transcripts. Oh my a God. long story. But anyways, the point being is like that's the type of nitty-gritty you got to deal with. Um, and you need someone who has the skills to do that. And we all know people in our lives who would be good at that and maybe people that we wouldn't be so good at that. And you, <laughs> you kind of factor that into your decision. Are you paying yourself? I think you should be paying yourself some for that work. There might not be much left over, though. No, the honest truth is the whole value of his estate, including his house, was $40,000. So there just was, was not much there. And I feel like uh, given the size of the estate, I think it's just better to distribute it to, to obviously my wife and then th the other three siblings. Well, honorable of you to see it all the way through, which it sounds like you are. And while you didn't include that as one of your scary stories, and that's not quite as scary as any of the seven stories, that's a little bit of a scary story. And so word to the wise. Robert, do you have any collections of things, surprisingly large collections of odds and ends in your life? I don't, and that's surprisingly large. I mean, I still have all of my albums from when I was a kid, and there's some original Beatles albums in there. Um, so there probably are some things that are, are pretty, you know, valuable there. When you say all of your albums, how many roughly? 200, 300 or so. I mean, I, I, I converted over to tapes and, and eight tracks pretty soon or early in life. So I don't have an extensive album collection, but regardless, it's, it's there and it's old. It's probably worth something. By the way, I have some original Weird Al albums, which I'm sure are worth loads of money at this point. <laughs>
How about you? Do you? What are your collections, David? Well, I have a spreadsheet of my 870 board games that are in my house. So holy yeah, shaving cream! I mean, that's that's they're both heavier than albums, and there's there's more of them. But um, I I think my family is already well aware of this, and I won't be surprising anybody when I decide uh, with lots of games to take or give away. So well. Robert, you've been so generous with your time. I love all seven of the stories, each of them scary in its own way. I love your mix of well-known people and then people that we've never heard of before. We're all human. That means we're all mortal. And for those of us who have at least something, it's such a gift to those who come after you, not just to think about it and plan for it, but actually to follow through with the plans, enact, sign the documents, and to your point earlier, bro, update those signatures every couple of years. Any concluding thoughts before we get ready a little bit later this month for Halloween? I'll just highlight something that you brought up earlier. And then when I think of my own situation with my father-in-law, I mean, I knew I was the executor of his estate and I knew that it was near the, the end of his life. He was 95 when he passed away. Um, and I wish I had talked to him more about his estate. The he was not. He was a very private person, especially when it came to money. I think there might have been a little bit of shame over the lack of money that he had. But I wish I had taken the time to speak with him beforehand, and it would have saved a, a lot of the heartache that we have now that this money is just tied up. Um, mm. So I would encourage everybody to do that. I mean, the holidays are coming up. I don't necessarily think you should sit around the Thanksgiving table and everyone talk about their estate plan, but you might have the opportunity to be about around relatives. And one of the ways you can begin the discussion at some point over the holidays or some other time is just say what you've done. I have done this. This is where you will find my stuff. This is the attorney to contact. What have you done and how can I help? Mm. Great advice. Let's talk about death over dinner, sometimes Thanksgiving dinner, maybe not Thanksgiving dinner to bro's point. Or earlier, you know, memorabilia. That's a way to open it up. Mementos. What really matters to you, mom or dad? And have you made some plans around that to decide where you want those things to go? Well, this was a lot of fun. It was admittedly not as scary as I thought it might be. But bro, I think we should make this an annual tradition. So as long as this podcast goes, we're in our eighth year. I don't know how long this goes, but I think every October we should have some more scary stories with Bro. We obviously focused on deceding this time and those who are ready or not for that, but there are a lot of scary things happening in and around the world of finance. And I know you've seen so much over the years, and you and I will keep continuing to have our eyes wide open as we see how the world plays out and try to give the best advice we can to our fellow fools everywhere. You've been doing so for 20 plus years. Thanks for doing it this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Happy Halloween, Robert. Thank you, David. And I guess I'll see you next year. It's a dead party. Who could ask for more? Everybody's coming. Leave your body at the door. Leave your body As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.